0: your bibles tonight to the beginning genesis it wasn't my intention to preach this when i first got a hold of it but uh, i just have been unable to put it down and and so anyways i'd like to say some things about the sexual immorality of our country tonight and um and uh a disclaimer i guess uh I know that I'm not up to date on things. I don't know all the names, and I don't know all the letters, so forgive me. Uh, Transgender, transvestite, A, B, C, Q, generation, whatever letter we're in. I don't understand all that stuff, and I don't try to keep up with it all. I just know if it's not one man and one woman married till death do them part, it's perverted in some way. So if I get some of the names wrong along the way, then so be it. But I do intend to say things about our culture and the state of religion in America. I've entitled the message, Embracing the Culture is the Root of Self-Destruction. And, you know, you might want to say, well, what in the world does this have to do with communion? And in one sense, I guess, nothing. In another sense, everything. Because that's the only hope for our culture, is that there is a Savior whose body was broken. And whose blood was shed and can purge anybody of their sin. Alright, so in Genesis 15, let us begin there and then we will make our way to Leviticus. If we pick up in Genesis 15 and verse 12, covenant with Abraham. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold dreadful, and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, you know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. These people are going to be in a place for 400 years. Okay. But I'm going to bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and shall be buried in a good old age. And they're going to come back here in the fourth generation. They're going to come to this land, this land of Canaan, this promised land at some point, 400 years down the road. Well, there's people that live there. In this land. And if something doesn't change, well, judgment's going to come on the people on that land. And the nation of Israel is going to drive them out. Now, think about, I want you to at least see at the beginning of this, the mercy of God and the patience of God. These people in Canaan, the Amorites, that I'm about to read the next text, these Amorites have had over four centuries to get right with God, but they haven't done it. They just keep waxing worse and worse and worse. So when Israel drives them out, it is just that they be driven out because they're wicked and they do wicked things. Okay. Verse 16, they'll come back here in the fourth generation. Notice the line, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Their iniquity has not reached full, has not come to completion. They're they're still in this iniquity, and it's still growing. It's just going to grow until there finally comes a point that it's full. When it comes to full, then the judgment of God will come. All right, and then for the remainder of the message this afternoon, you can put yourself in Leviticus chapter 18. And in Leviticus 18, we'll be back in Canaan addressing these Amorites. Before we do, let me say some other introductory words to this message. The Amorites lived in the land of Canaan, and as I've already said, they were certainly a wicked people. Now, in my position, they were given grace. And I say given grace, why? Well, because God could have snuffed them out on day one if he would like to. God could have judged them. They were sinners and God could have done away with them many, many years ago. And so um, maybe they began to presume upon the grace of God. I don't know. But after 400 years, maybe they think, well, nothing's going to happen to us. But God's very long suffering and we need to remember that. In Genesis, we're told, as we read, that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Only God knows when sin reaches its maximum capacity for an individual or for a group or for a nation. But when the iniquity reaches its full measure, it is time for the just judgment of God to be executed. Make no mistake about it. The judgment will come. Now, heaven will not take the Amorites. And the earth does not want them, so our text will say the earth vomited them out. It's a terrible position to be in when heaven won't take you and the earth won't receive you. The nation of Israel was used to drive out the Amorites out of the land that they were also, but they were also given a warning. So drive all these people out, cut them off, do away with them, but listen carefully. Listen carefully. It's very, very important. The warning to the nation of Israel was, you better not embrace the culture. Whatever you do, when you take these people and drive them out, do not imitate, duplicate, adopt their practices. Note to self, if God's judgment does this to the Amorites, and you do the same thing, you can only expect the same judgment. So they are not to duplicate what the culture was doing. Some of these phrases seem basic to me, but I don't know. I just want them to be heard tonight. We live in a land that says the culture sets the norm. No, 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 no. God sets the norm. The culture doesn't tell the church how to function. The Bible tells the church how to function. No matter what the culture says. Say, well, everybody, it doesn't matter what everybody, God's Word says, and it's being pressed upon us so hard that churches are beginning to validate things that God has clearly pronounced invalid. The application of history is no different. It keeps working the same, and someday I wish we would catch on. When the church embraces the culture and begins to hold the same worldview as society, it is very near time for judgment to be executed. Yeah, I know you could say this is one of those doom and gloom sermons. I'm just reading the mail. I'm just revisiting history, if you will. When the church, at, and I'm using church not very generally, covering evangelicalism if you like, whatever, but when the church begins to condone, condone women in the pulpit, when the church begins to tolerate the sexual immoral inside and outside the church, when the church begins to sacrifice their children to the philosophies of the world, when the church begins to embrace the animal kingdom to the same level of humanity. Exactly how much time is left until the iniquity is complete? Or if you want it from the New Testament, maybe it should be said like this. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, then what is going to be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? 1 Peter 4.17. My thesis is a Bible verse, so it's just straight from the prophet Isaiah. So Isaiah says it this way, and so this is my thesis. Isaiah 5.20. Woe is a word for judgment. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who turn things upside down. What do you mean upside down? The opposite way that God laid it out. When God makes a case clear and the world turns it over and takes the opposite position. That's what Isaiah is saying. They call evil good. They call good evil. They put darkness for light and light for darkness. They put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Welcome to our culture. A culture that takes that which God says abominable and makes it the norm of the day, and presses it on the church with these words always attached, that if you do not take our position, you are unloving. You have no mercy. That's what the world says. Now, to be clear, I am not a great Hebrew scholar. I'm not even a scholar. I'm not a Hebrew anything. But I do know a bit about Greek, and so I work with the Septuagint, and I do word studies the best I can. So I'm just letting you know that. But I'm doing my word studies primarily from the Greek language rather than the Hebrew language. But it's not a contrast of difference. It's not like Hebrew and Greek are opposed. They're just different languages. But with what I'm working with, I want to do a word study or put before you tonight this word abomination, this word abominable. I want to set that word before you. And I'll tell you up front, I at least can be honest, one of the problems I have is why does the sexual immorality of our day make me so stinking mad. I mean, I'm i just being true. I, if I go into a room and I've got two homosexual guys kissing, I'm angry. I'm just telling you, it just gets all over me. I know it's not politically correct, but I'm offended to the nth degree. And I, I'm like, I can't walk out of the room without saying something. I'm like, you people need to repent. You're going to go to hell. I, I might say something like that. I'd be prone to say something like that. And so hey, what what makes me more angry about sexual sins than, say, just the common sins of the day? Maybe I don't get that mad when somebody lies, but I really get mad when you wave your gay pride flag in my face. Okay, so what, what's going on here in my heart? I, I need to examine what's causing this within me. So my word study helps me a bit because the Bible uses this word abomination, abominable. So, the first word, abomination, uh, something to be, something that's loathsome. Now, we're talking about sexual sins tonight, and we're talking about, in God's view, something that is loathsome to Him. It's a word that means to detest something because it's utterly offensive, loathsome. It means to abhor something. It means to detest something now this is a word used obviously here in leviticus and leviticus 1830 if you glance there we'll be in leviticus 18 most of our time but if you look in leviticus 1830 so keep my charge never to practice any of these this is what god says through moses these abominable customs customs these abominable norms of the land of Canaan that the Amorites are doing. This is their culture. This is what they do. Be be cautious never to practice, never to participate in these abominable customs, these things that detest me, these things I abhor. Revelation 21.8 uses the same word. It says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, and then here's our word, for the detestable. That's the word abominable. These detestable. He goes in the list with murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars. And he says very clearly in Revelation, they will have their portion in the lake that burns with fire. It's, it's not very loving. Look, I'm just telling you that people that practice this, live like this, their portion is in the lake of fire. You say, "Well, that's your position." No, that's the position of God's word. That's what he says in regards to those who practice these things. And he tells the nation of Israel, "Don't practice their customs. Don't get on board. Don't come into agreement with these practices." There's another word in our text in Leviticus 18, and it's a word that gets translated profane. Look there in Leviticus 18:21. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech or Moloch, depending on your translation. And he says, to do this because you profane the name of your God. This child sacrifice business is a profanation of the name of God. Now, this particular word is to cause something that's highly revered to become identified as commonplace. To violate the sanctity of something, to desecrate something, thus to profane something. In Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 13, this word is used, and it's used this way. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live, and my Sabbath days. They greatly profaned. They took a holy day and made it a common day. That's profanation. Then I said, this is the Lord speaking through Ezekiel. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. Why? Profanation. Profaning God's name. Profaning God's day. Profaning God's design for marriage. Another word. In Leviticus 18 is now we said abominable, we said profane. Now we look at the word abomination." There is some overlap, but look in your text at Leviticus 18:22: "You shall not lie with a male as with a woman." Undoubtedly, Leviticus 18 is written primarily to men, and then it is divulged down from that. But you shall not lie with a male as with a woman." There's not a problem understanding the text. The only option you have here is to say that's the Old Testament. I don't know how that helps, but nevertheless, that's about all you can do. Because it's not vague. It's like you don't have to go to Hebrew school to figure this out. If you're a man, you don't lie with another man like you would another woman. Why? Because it's an abomination. That's what it is. It's an abomination. You say, who says? God says. God says it's an abomination, and that's his position and his position has not changed. You see that in verse 22. You see it again in verse 26. Eighteen twenty-six it says, But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these, referring to these sexual sins, you shall do none of these abominations. Neither the native or the stranger sojourns among my people. Verse 27, you'll see it again. For the people of the land who were before you, the Amorites, did all of these abominations. What was the result? The whole land became unclean. And then you see it again in verse 29. Everyone who does any of these abominations, everyone, male, female, young, old, everyone who does these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off, shall be cut off, separated from their people. Now this word, abomination, that we just looked at those four texts, this word, God's position, this is his definition, if you will, of this word, something disgusting. Something that's disgusting that arouses wrath. It's so disgusting, it's like smoke begins to come out of his nostrils. This is the word. It also means loathe to loathe something, to hate something, vehemently opposed to something. This word is certainly used in the New Testament. In Luke 16, 15, he says there in that text, Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Makes smoke come out of his nostrils. Wrath begins to churn. This is God's position for sexual immorality. And then, in the last book of the Bible, Revelation twenty-one twenty-seven, match twenty-one twenty-seven with twenty-one eight, 21-27 and twenty-one eight hooked together here. He, he says this about the promise, the true promised land: nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is, you know, there's our word, ESV translates it, detestable. It, it, nothing in clean, no one who does what is an abomination, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. It seems to be that those written in the Lamb's book of life are a different group from those who practice that which God calls an abomination. And then you get one eight. Uh, We've already stated as for cowards and faithless and the detestable, the abomination ones, murderers and the whole list. They will have their part in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, that's just a word study, just looking at these words a little bit in depth. In application, I've often wondered why the perversion of God's design for men and women so angers me. I stated that at the beginning of the message. Well, I want to say now that it appears to me that my position is not totally unwarranted. Why? Because we're to hate what God hates, and we're to love what God loves. So I think that possibly my reaction of being aroused to wrath or being repulsed by our culture and their sexual immorality is not a sign of a lack of spirituality. It may very well be a sign of spirituality that we hold the same position that God does. Now, you can look at the prophet Amos in Amos chapter 5 verse 15. He says, hate evil. That's what the prophet says, hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. You cannot have justice if you don't hate evil. You cannot have justice if you don't love good. We have to have both of these things. And by the way, it is the position of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll find this position in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 9. Dr. Yule mentioned this verse. I'm just emphasizing it differently. He says of the Lord Jesus, You have loved righteousness. Christ loves righteousness. There's just no doubt about it. But he also, the verse says, hated wickedness. And the sexual perversion of our country and our generation is wicked. And so God anointed him with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. In a sense, he's anointed and set apart because he had the right position to love righteousness and to hate wickedness. Now, I must put a warning in a sense because there are weirdos in our land. Confessing Christian weirdos, those guys who try to blow up abortion clinics, burn down abortion buildings, and kill abortion doctors, have gone off their bubble, or maybe they don't have a bubble. So I just do want to warn you not to misapply truth. The truth that we hate evil and love good does not validate violence. It doesn't do that. We're not talking about, oh, hate means let's go kill all the, you know, the homosexuals or something like this. That's not what we're saying here. It, it does not validate breaking the law of the land. I mean, Romans would clear that up for us. And it does not validate an open display of some type of fleshly hatred towards another human being. That's not what we're saying. And I would also say this truth does not negate the gospel and pleading with men to repent. Look, I'm not, we don't even have a message here to condemn everybody to hell because they're some kind of transvestite or homosexual or or they don't know what their pronoun is. We're not condemning them to hell. We're saying you can be saved if you'd come out of your wickedness. That's the good news of the gospel. You can be delivered. I don't have a gospel that keeps you homosexual. I have a gospel that sets you free. We don't have to be one. We have to keep that balance. Or if you want it in another example, and then I was thinking about things I hate. It's one thing, and you already know this, but I hate alcohol. From the bottom of my foot, the top of my head, I'm not ever going to give it up. I hate it with everything within me, and justly so. But I don't go down to the local bar the honky-tonk woman with his existence and burn it down. They didn't do that. I go in there and I make friends and I know them by name. And I call them to repentance. And when somebody dies, they ask me to preach the funeral and they know I'm going to bring the gospel. But I hate alcohol and everybody there knew it. And they never offered me a drink. I'm certainly not going to go shoot up the bar or something like this. But I can tell you this. My hatred of alcohol certainly separates me from the group. And when they have an alcohol party, you can go ahead and write it down. They're not inviting me. Why? Well, because the position is clear. And the third point of application in regards to abomination, abominable, profane, I would say to you tonight to hold firm to loving what God loves and hating what God hates. Now, I, this is my position. You have to work out your own position. I am not complying. I'm not. I refuse. Fired, shot, dead, burned at the stake. I am not complying to the use of pseudo-pronouns. I'm not doing it. I'm using the pronoun that you were born with. I'm calling you he, I'm calling you she, and I'm not calling you something you're not because it's a lie. I'm not going to take the position of condoning, complying, or participating in the sexually perverted agenda of the world. This is not news for you, but if you've got a young boy getting married to another young boy, don't waste your time asking me to officiate the funeral. It's not the funeral. <laughs> the wedding. Whatever it is, I'm not officiating it. I'm not doing it. I'm done. We, we can't embrace this thing. I'm not even going to the wedding because it's not one. Make no mistake about it though, I do understand the pressure here. I do have a family and I do have those of these persuasions even in my own family. The sexual perversion of America, make no mistake about this, in case you've missed it, the news media is not going to tell you this, but the sexual perversion of our country and in churches at large is a direct attack upon God himself. And the way they attack God is to attack the very thing he treasures, which is family. This is the way God designed it? Then we'll take the whole culture and the whole country from the president down and do everything we can to strip the family unit and obliterate it where it doesn't exist. That way we can destroy God. That's our country. And many churches have bought into it and participate and condone it to a certain degree. Lest you think I'm crazy, lest you think I've lost my mind, take a position like this in some churches in Azel and see how long you last in the room. And at large, it gets worse as it spreads out. Point number two, I told you before you came, I put it in writing. It's going to go long. Number two, Amorites in Canaan for over four centuries, 400-something years, The land beforehand is given to Abraham. When it's given to him, it's possessed by them. They possessed it by right. They lost it by iniquity. They possessed it by right, but because of their iniquity, they justly lost it. Now, the Lord's anger is slow. He's very patient. They were given plenty of time, but take note. Everyone, every nation comes to the end of time. God's time. Number three, let us apply God's word, Leviticus 18 and chapter 20 as well. But let us look at verse, chapter 18, let us look at 1 through 5, and think about sexual immorality in our land as we work through this text. He says in 1 through 5, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Here's what you do. You speak to the people of Israel and you say to them, I am the Lord your God. That's the foundation. That's the basis. That's the authority. That's the one who has the right to define all of these things. It's based on who God is. Period. Number three. You shall not do as they do in the land of America. You cannot function Like the culture functions. You can't function this way where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan. Whether it's Egypt or whether it's Canaan, you cannot adopt the culture. I'm bringing you to this place. No up front. Whatever they're doing, do the opposite. You shall follow my rules. It's for your good. You shall keep my statutes. It's for your good. You shall walk in them. Well, who says? God says, I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. And again, I am the Lord. I'll take verses 1 through 5 and make two points out of it. Point number one, it's very simple and very clear. Do not do as they do. And you know, you say, well, that's not all that revelatory. I already know that. Well, if you already know that, and the church at large knows that, why is there such a propensity in our day and time to embrace that which is an abomination to God? When we know these things are not right, they're not even sane. We got drag queens reading books to kindergartners in our schools. Something is wrong here, and we cannot do what they do. Somebody has to walk in a different way. The only way we can do that is to walk in obedience to the rules and the statutes and the commandments of our Lord. But you do, you do, and you will pay. You take this position in school, you take it in work, you take it on your job, you might very well lose it. You very well may lose family and friends that will never talk to you again if you do not condone the sexual immorality of their daughter or their granddaughter. They may even come to the preacher and say, don't you dare preach on this subject because you may lose this one, this one, this one, and this one. And so there's this pressure that's put upon you to embrace it. And the, the, the position is, it's like, I'll just be silent and that way nobody will know. God knows. State your position and live by it. And may your position line up with God's position. Secondly, if it's worded differently, verses 1 through 5, follow God's decrees. Follow His statutes. Walk in His statutes. And I know, I understand the lingo, do and live, do and live. I understand what the modern people say. We're under the new covenant. We're under grace. I'm not as dumb as I look. I know that. But tell me this, what's wrong with doing and living? What's wrong with doing things the way God designed them to do in order that you might experience life? I'll tell you this. I've been doing marriage for 35 years God's way, and I've got no regrets. I've been living it up with my wife. I love her more than anything on the face of the earth. I think it's a great way to live. Do and live. And I say, if you've got that, cherish it. Right? I mean, mean, he's not talking about getting saved in the sense. We know it's by grace. Do and live doesn't change. It's hmm. It's not saved by grace so that we can live a sexually perverted life. It's not that. Hey, we're saved by grace. Let's all be sexual perverts. This is not what God's saying here. We're saved by grace in order that we can be delivered from sexual perversion. We don't have to be in the confines and the bonds of sexual perversion because God's gospel is powerful enough to bring you out of it. What does this phrase mean? Gay church. You still ain't going in the same sentence. Now verses 6 through 18, a larger block. Forsake sexual sins. I am going to read it because it's not a section we ever read. But notice the specificity of what he says. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. And why in the world would you write that? Because it's a problem. And he says again, I am the Lord, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughters or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter brought up in your father's family since she is your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother, that is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter. And you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. All of it is depravity. Wickedness. Verse 18. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. Now, I will disclose I'm not ashamed of it, but you have to go back to dead people to find people that'll say something. So all of my quotes are from Matthew Henry. They're all from Matthew Henry on purpose, but I'm just telling you that up front. It is a moral filth This is the way the Bible speaks. It is a moral filth to uncover the nakedness of others. You say, what's the deal? The deal here for you and for your children is pornography. That's the deal. When you uncover nakedness on your phone, I I don't understand it all, but why do parents pay $100 a month to feed their children pornography? Makes no sense to me. They don't check, they don't look, and they don't care. Just have all the pornography you want to have, take your phone and run out in the woods, and look at it however you want, and I'll never check it. That's nonsense. You, you look up on nakedness, it is a moral Filth, and it will clog your mind, it will affect your heart, and it will change the character of who you are, and it will cause you regret when one day you finally get married. Pornography is off the charts. Pastors fall, deacons fall, Sunday school teachers fall, men, women, across the board. I'm sitting at the taqueria before it changed ownership, and the guys at the table across me at lunch are looking at nude pictures on their phone while they wait on their meal. Something's wrong in this society. It is a moral filth. Marriage is divine, a divine institution. It cannot be compromised. Whether you like it or not, God designed it so. This is how it works. It's not complicated. You get a man, a male species. You get a woman, a female species. And they come together in matrimony. And they satisfy one another in matrimony until they die. God says he'll bless that. It's the divine sanction of marriage until death do them part. How many weddings you've been to in your life, it's one of my favorite parts, until death do you part. You have to say, I do. Make a covenant before God and your church. Anything contrary to this is a digression from what God says is best. Clarity is given in regards of what is sexually Perverted. Why are these areas that we read, why are these areas of sexual perversion so meticulously covered? Well, because it's the exact direction humanity will go if it departs from God. You want to see a culture that's left God? Just find sexual perversion on the rise. That's where it goes. I'm dating myself to some degree, I'm sure, but... We have gone from Klinger on the show called MASH to drag show queens reading books in kindergarten and school. Back when Klinger did it, it seemed funny. It ain't funny. It wasn't funny then, and it's surely not funny now. This, in, in my view today, reading the Bible, watching culture, let me just say there's not any limit. That our country will not go to to utterly destroy the family institution and mock God. So I'm gonna make a statement that's gonna sound bizarre as bizarre can be. But years ago I said something about these things, and I said something about women marrying women and men marrying men, and they thought that was bizarre. And now it seems to be normal. And then I'm gonna give you another bizarre one that one day in the next few years is gonna be normal. Here's what's gonna happen in the next few years. People are gonna demand the right to marry their pet. And they're going to demand for the government to subsidize them for health benefits to take care of their dog that they're sleeping with. It's called bestiality. Don't think I'm making this up. He warns about it in this passage. More common than you think, and more common than I want to dwell on longer, I get sick. He says about this section here, you get down to verse 17 and the ESV says it is depravity. Sexual sins are classified as depravity. Another word, wickedness. Uh, NASB uses the word lewdness. King James, the word wickedness. If you look in some notes in this other translation, he says this term carries the connotation of cunning, evil device, and divisiveness. And it's always closely associated with with sexual infidelity. That's all of these. All these relationships of nakedness are a digression into the sexual infidel, the wickedness and the depravity of the human nature. There's another light translation I don't recommend, but it says it's an act of shame, an act of shame. We move down to verses 19 and 20. And he says here, You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. Verse 20. You shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. Seems pretty clear. Maybe we should say it this way. Keep the marriage bed undefiled. Let's jump to the New Testament. We go to Hebrews 13.4. Let marriage... Be held, anybody, in honor. I live in a world that mocks marriage. I live in a world that disdains marriage. What's wrong with you? You've only slept with one woman your whole life? How terrible. You have no idea what you're saying. None. None. You don't know the blessings of having a pure marriage. If you did, you'd never talk this way. Let marriage be held in honor. You got a man and you got a woman, and they're married until death do them part, like my grandfather and my grandmother, like my other grandfather and my other grandmother. Praise God. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Why? Why should we do that? Why should we keep the marriage bed undefiled? Because I'm telling you, this is what the Bible says. God himself will judge the sexually immoral. My God's not a God of judgment. You don't know God. God will judge the sexually immoral. And also, he will judge all the adulterers. Hebrews 13, 4. We live in a country that doesn't want to be judged Ask Cody if you need some info, but you go out and preach on the streets about sexual immorality, and boy, they'll scream judgment really fast. We live in a country, don't want to be judged for their sexual immoral lifestyle, but yet one day, they will stand before the God who will judge them. We live in a country whose religious base promotes the acceptance of sexual immorality while at the same time claiming To worship the God who calls sexual immorality an abomination. Think of this. How many people were duped that there was supposedly a great awakening at Osbury College and there's this great revival and God's just pouring out his spirit and the platform is led by people doing the music who are homosexual. And we're supposed to think that homosexuals who are an abomination to God are leading people to worship the God who is at wrath with those who are leading. And the American church buys it up. Oh, it must be a move of God. They've stood in line for hours. Standing in line does not make it a move of God. Standing in line may mean you're at six flags. It had nothing to do with it being a move of God. And God's moving in that service. It looked much more like Ananias and Sapphire. Do not sacrifice your children. Leviticus eighteen twenty one. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, Moloch, and so profane the name of your God. Why? Again, the same. I am the Lord. Moloch, Matthew Henry, Moloch was the idol in and by which they worshipped the sun. That great fire of the world And therefore, in the worship of it, they made their own children either sacrifices to this idol, burning them to death before it, or devotees to it, causing them to pass between two fires, as some think, or to be thrown through one to the honor of this pretended deity, imagining that the consecrating of but one of their children in this manner to Moloch would procure good fortune for the rest of their family. I'll sacrifice one kid if it'll work out to be a blessing for my other kids. Or from another source, Moloch, a heathen god worshipped especially by the Ammonites. That's who we're talking about. With gruesome orgies in which little ones were sacrificed. At least in some places an image of the god... Was heated and the bodies of children who had just been slain were laid in its arms. Now, I know it's not just me because I know who some of the people are in this room. It's just hard to comprehend that people intentionally on purpose go to a clinic and slaughter their own baby for the sake of convenience and expect me to pay for it through tax dollars. It's hard to comprehend that we have leaders in our country pushing the acceptance of abortion in order that we can slaughter innocent lives, in order that women can be free to have as much sex as they want with whoever they want, whenever they want, because when you get done, just go kill your baby and it's all fine. This is a country we live in. By the millions, they slaughter baby after baby after baby after baby, and they'll even pay for you to go to another state because Texas is too conservative. We'll pay you to go to another state where you can kill your baby just so you can be free. We've even got some lingo here. I, the woman ought to have rights of her own body. What about the baby's rights? Sacrifice our children. I know that's gruesome. I know, but it's where we live. It's our country. But on a smaller note, we sacrifice our children to sports. We had, we had to make sure that they can dribble a basketball or they can make some fame. But yet they can't find Matthew in their Bible. It's a shame. Do not lie with the same sex. You shall not lie. Verse twenty-two. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. I've heard so many arguments. I'm like, just read your Bible, son. Just read your Bible. Romans 1, 26 and 27. It's not hard to understand. For this reason, God gave them up. He gave them up to dishonorable passions. Why? Why would God give up a people? Why would He just turn them over and let them run? Well, because women exchange natural relations, natural, a woman and a man. They exchange that relation for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up national relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The Bible doesn't hide this stuff. You go to Sodom and Gomorrah, and you find these guys. This guy goes in this house, and they're out beating on the house, and they want that guy where they can sodomize him all night. And the owner says, look, take my virgin daughter and do what you want with her. They're like, no, we want this guy. It's how wicked and perverted the society of Sodom and Gomorrah was. Deuteronomy 23, 17, and 18, none of his, the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. And none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow. For both of these, well, they're an abomination to the Lord your God. Back to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know, Paul asked this question, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know that? I mean, it's not a hard question. He he follows the question. He really doesn't give the answer. He just follows the question like this. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, or men who practice homosexuality. They will not inherit the kingdom. 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 10. Now we know that the law is good. Amen. If anyone uses it lawfully. Understanding this. You see, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. I don't know if you're getting bored or getting tired at this point in the sermon. I'm belaboring this and I told you it was going to be lengthy because I hear this stuff every day you can't see anything on the media. I I, I I always hit mute if there's a commercial on. I don't want to listen to anything they have to say, and I try to fast forward anything, and re- if it's recorded, I can just buzz over it. Now they got men kissing on a commercial. I mean, it's being shoved down our faces. I just want you as a church to know the Bible's not silent. It's not vague. It's not confusing. God stated his position plainly like some 6,000 years ago, and he keeps repeating it through every culture. I don't think it's It should be complicated for a Christian man or a Christian woman to understand that what the world is promoting is an abomination to God. Matthew Henry. That ever there should have been an occasion for the making of these laws, and that since they are published, they should ever have been broken, is the perpetual reproach and scandal of human nature. And the giving of men up to these vile affections was frequently the punishment of their idolatries, so the apostle shows. Verse 23, no bestiality. I told you it was here. You shall not lie with an animal, so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall a woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. Why? It's perversion. The society that embraces this type of thing is odious and causes a stink in the nostrils of all good men. Shall we as a people embrace such vileness? (laughs) The amount of love that humanity has for a pet is off the charts. I assure you this happened. I assure you that somebody come across the road, clipped me on my bicycle, flipped me over the handlebars, and I went down through the ditch, and they drove off and left me in that ditch. Little did they think about it, but they drove down a dead-end road. And I know that they can't get out of this dead-end road. I went down to their house and followed them, and I asked them why they laid me in that ditch to die. And they would not answer me, and I said to the woman, I said, listen here, if you'd have done that to a dog, you would have went and checked on him. And she started weeping because it was true. A couple of points of application. Holding a biblical position will cost you in this world in which we live. It will. It will limit your number of friends for sure. Holding a biblical position will put you in the minority in the world and in a lot of churches strap this position on some of the churches in azel and around our area around the globe if you will and you'll find in a Sunday school room you might be the only one holding the position the arguments that will be dr- that you will be drug into in regards to sexual immorality and all that that entails your ears will inevitably hear this phrase, you are unloving. You are unloving. Think that through. You're being accused of being unloving because you hold the position that God holds, which is to accuse God of not being loving. Number four, acknowledge God's judgment. Verses 24 through 30, through the end of the chapter. Look there at the text. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, neither the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you, they did all these abominations so that the land became unclean lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. They became unclean, sexual perversion. They were punished, And they were vomited out. Matthew Henry again. The tremendous judgments of God executed on those who are daringly profane and atheistical are intended as warnings to those who profess religion to take heed of everything that has the least appearance of or even the tendency toward that which is profane. Mark it, note it, and stay away from it. Isaiah 1, verse 24, Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies, and I will avenge myself on my foes. Revelation 3, 16, as he says to the church of Laodicea, So because you are lukewarm, you're not cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Wicked religious Americans are as abominable to God as the wicked Amorites. So much for flag-waving today. And more so, a vomiting out is on the way, so that it might be, (laughs) vomiting is on its way. How can it not be? We'd be, you'd say, how's it going to come? I have no idea. I'm not some kind of weirdo prophet that's going to happen this way and this is going to happen that way. I didn't know what's going to happen. I just know a society cannot continue to survive as it continues on a path that attacks God and destroys the human in, this institution of marriage. You're to keep the statutes and rules. Do none of their abominations. Verse 26, if you do, you'll be vomited out. Please listen carefully, Matthew, Henry. I know again, but listen carefully. Nobody else is going to say this. Nobody. Here's what he says. Lay the ear of faith to the gates of the bottomless pit. Hear the doleful shrieks and the outcries of damned sinners whom earth has spewed out and hell has swallowed that find themselves undone. Forever undone by sin and tremble. Oh, church, tremble. Lest this be your portion at last. God's threatenings and his judgments should frighten us from sin. You're trying to scare me. No kidding. Why? What's the basis for such severe language on sexual impurity? I am the Lord. That's the basis. God has written it. You can be detested by the Lord, verse 23. You can be vomited out, verse 22. Verse 24, that which is to be inherited is good. And and we're to separate from the world to receive it. Verse 25, you must separate from that which would make you unclean. It's always been this way. You do not see this in our culture. In the religious culture of America, is how can we make the gospel palatable in such a way that you can take all the smuck of the world and go to heaven and balance both in your life? It was never the intention. It's always been separate, separate, separate. Holy, holy, holy. Come out from among them. Come out from among them. Come out from among them. If you go in, don't do what they do. Drive them out and obey the Lord your God. Don't intermarry. Don't marry over here. Don't go with those people. It will destroy your life. And here we have a church all across the land. Everybody's welcome. Let's all have a happy old good time. I can't have a happy good old time with a bunch of sexual perverts mocking my God. Well, You don't love those people? Yes. I love them enough to say repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for it's your only hope. Matthew Henry, again, our constant care must be to preserve the honor by preserving the purity of our own souls and never to do anything to make them abominable to God and to our own conscience. Verse 26, holiness is the requirement from a holy God. And then if you will look, this is strange, and I still haven't worked out my position. If you look in Leviticus 20, You'll find the same things, and I'm not going to go through chapter 20, although we could. Just note a couple of verses here. In the midst of this same discussion, worded a little bit differently, concluding with, you shall be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. But if you look in Leviticus 20 and verse 7, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Peter says the same thing, 1 Peter 1.16. So you have this whole sexual perversion discussion. And then you have these two odd verses, right? They come up, two odd verses. And you're like, what is that? And you look at verse 6. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I'll set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. And then you look over in verse 27 of chapter 20. A man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones, and their blood shall be upon them. Now, why in the world do you have mediums and necromancers, witchcraft, attached in the middle of a discussion about sexual impurity in the land? The only thing I know is is that this has to do with the occult. It has to do with some kind of spiritual wickedness. It has to do with demonic depression, demonic oppression. And that's what the sexual immorality of the world leads to, to some type of demonic possession. And you get men and women doing things and being demon-possessed, doing things they would have never dreamed that they would ever do. All right, if it eases you up somewhat, that's fine. You're free to leave anytime you want. I told you early it was going to be long. We haven't even started communion. You can go. I'll be here all night. I'm not going to be all night, but I'm going to finish this. But at <laughs> 9 o'clock, you know you're safe. But as I think about this, I you know, say, Pastor, what in the world am I supposed to do with all this stuff that you've given me tonight? I just want you at least to know that God says something about it. It's like the church is silent, like I don't know what position to take. How do you, how do you not know what position to take? I, I just want you to know it is in the Bible and God stated the case, and it's true. So tonight, as we try to move towards communion, you say, how do you go from that to communion? How, how do you make this transfer? Well, we'll get there. As we think about this message individually and corporately, let me say just a couple of things about both. Individually. <clears throat> I know my position. It doesn't make me better than you. It just means I've worked it out by studying texts like this. But you, as an individual believer, man, woman, old or young, you have to decide where you stand. I assure you the world will run over you if you don't take a position. Secondly, you must ask God to give you the strength to stand with your position in this world we live in. Three, you must be willing to submit to the truth that God's given you in the Bible. Don't buy into this hogwash that it's Old Testament only. That's not true. Don't buy into this hogwash that it's culturally relevant in Corinthians and in Timothy. That's not true. It's been God's position since Genesis, and it's still His position. Remember, Matthew Henry, again, those that sin like others must expect to smart like them, and their profession of relation to God will be no security to them. Now, corporately, that's individually now as a body, church, by the word Baptist church. We as a church must hold our ground. We have bylaws. We took the time to write in our bylaws that we will not perform these type of marriages or these types of ceremonies. That's our position. As easily, in a sense, as we got that written in there, just mark it down. Somebody else can erase it. 10 years from now and they can take it out and the church vote on it and approve it. I just say to you tonight as a church, hold your ground. You say, don't, don't have this position because it's your pastor's position. Have this position because it's God's position. So if I fall over dead tomorrow, don't change your bylaws. Just stay with them because God's word supports it. We as a church must be gracious with the gospel but not condoning of the times. We as a church must not be prideful. It's a temptation. And we must not be dogmatic, drilling people and pressing them down. But we must love what God loves and we must hate what God hates. Now, how in the world do we receive communion tonight? Well, we know this, that no matter how wicked your sin or my sin may be, those who have come to Christ have been forgiven. Because His body was broken and His blood was shed. We know that Christ's body was broken. We know His blood was shed. And His blood is the only blood that was sufficient to cleanse us and make us whole. Know that Christ's atonement Forgives us and delivers us from sin. Not delivers us to sin. Delivers us from it. That's the power of the gospel. Look, the church at large has embraced a gospel that you're forgiven to sin. We're still trying to hold to this gospel that's forgiveness from sin. That we can be sanctified and live to the glory of God and for the good of our own souls. Let's take a moment and pray. I'll light the candles and we'll prepare to serve.